You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. Hello and welcome everyone. Welcome back to The Way Home Podcast. This is your host, Dan Darling, and I'm so glad you're joining me today. I'm coming to you uh, from the campus of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and Texas Baptist College, uh, where um, I am an associate professor for faith and culture, also the director of the Land Center for Cultural Engagement. Uh, Our family is getting settled in here in Texas after moving from Nashville, and a lot of big changes in store for us, and we're glad, really glad to be here. Before we get to our next guest, who I I know you're going to enjoy, I really appreciated uh, this conversation. I want to tell you about a few things. First of all, my new book, The Characters of Creation, is available from Moody Press. Uh, It's the third in the series. Uh, We have the characters of Christmas, the characters of Easter, and now the characters of creation. really goes through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. If you're intrigued by Genesis, uh, by some of the what we read there and some of the characters, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, the serpent, uh, who are the Nephilim, the mysterious sort of uh, creatures there in Genesis. Uh, I think you'll enjoy this book. If you're a pastor who wants to preach on Genesis and do a series, this might really help your study. If you're someone who's starting a new Bible program and like some help kind of understanding the pages of Genesis, or if you're just interested in, in how you know, what the Bible says about how the world began, things are so broken, and what God's plan is for redemption. I think you'll enjoy the characters of creation. You can go to my website, danieldarling.com. You go to amazon.com, christianbook.com, or your favorite retailer to buy that book. Hope uh, you'll check that out. Also, if you're someone who's interested in uh, studying with us here, I want to encourage you to come check out Texas Baptist College or Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, we start a faith and culture concentration here and love for you to consider us. You can go to uh, swbts.edu, go to texasbaptistcollege.com and check us out. Okay, I'd like to get to our conversation today. Uh, I'm delighted to have Dr. George Yancey. George uh, is a w- well-respected author. He has a PhD and he teaches, is a professor at the Institute for Studies of Religion at Baylor University. He specializes in race, ethnicity, and religion, and uh, George has been a real great resource uh, to study about racial reconciliation, racial tension. The last few years, perhaps no topic has divided the American people more, has divided the church more. A lot of people are wondering, how should we think about some of these things? He's written uh, uh, some really good books. His latest one is called Beyond Racial Division. A Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and Anti-Racism. Uh, he tackles, I think, some of the um, concerning aspects of things like uh, popular anti-racism books and curriculum, some of the things that people are uh, really concerned about with CRT and other things. He also talks about the peril of, of what he calls colorblindness, some of the ways that we sometimes talk about race that are unhelpful. I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. I highly recommend his book, and uh, he's... Uh, just a great uh, scholar, uh, a great churchman, and someone I think you'll benefit from. Let's go right now to our conversation with Dr. George Yancey. George, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. 
So, George, I think I first heard or read you uh, years ago when you had a book on what you called uh, Christianophobia, a sort of anti-Christian sentiment that you found uh, both sort of in the West, but in academia. And uh, I just have been reading your stuff ever since. But maybe share a little bit of your story in terms of how you came to kind of write on um, some of the important cultural and social uh, things going on uh, in, in the United States. Yeah, I mean, I guess it just depends on what we're talking about. Like on Christianophobia, it was partially my observation being a Christian in, in academia, uh, but, but also... Uh, I remember I saw, I was watching a presentation of someone trying to show that this was not a problem. And I had serious problems with, with his methodology and said, well, no, if you're going to look at it, you need to do this, this, and this. And so a couple of years later, I did this, this, and this, and, and I wound up with a, with a book or two out of it. So uh, now as concerns race, uh, I think that's a little bit different story. You know, obviously as an African-American, I feel it pretty much so. Uh, but I've never been really angry at it. And in my book, I, I tell you know, about the turning point in my life where I realized that, you know, there are some things that I encounter as an African-American that I cannot overcome. Uh, and, and, you know, that was a broken relationship. So, uh, so that was a turning point that got me interested in studying race. Uh, and, and so that's what, and, you know, that was like 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things I think is interesting, George, about your work is I don't think this is intentional necessarily, but I feel like when you write and you speak, you're sort of um, – I know, I know the, the concept of a third way is sort of dismissed these days by all sides, but I do feel like you're trying to find ways to bring people together uh, on some of these issues. Has that always kind of been your posture when, when studying these things? That how do we have these conversations with people who come at it? from such different perspectives. Yeah, I think on racial issues, it really has been because I can see a lot of different sides. I, you know, I've talked to people in different camps and, and talk, really talk to them, not just talk at them so that I can understand where they're coming from and you know, concede, hey, you know what? You got a good point here. And so I, I think if we had more understanding, understanding why people believe what they believe, even if we don't agree with them, It'll, it gives more compassion so that we'll want to work with them. And so that's been something that I think ever since I really dived into race, that's what I really have wanted to do. Yeah, I, I really appreciated uh, your latest book, uh, Beyond Racial Division, A Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and Anti-Racism. I'm working on a book project on, on Christian unity that's coming out next year, and I have a chapter on race. And I read quite a few books because I, I have a similar desire, though I have not studied it at all to the extent that you have of the idea that I feel like there's a lot of folks who are talking past each other. We're sort of polarized into our, into our separate sort of camps and it, it is kind of furthered polarization. And so I was, I found your book really refreshing in, in many ways. And, and it seems like there's a genre of folks who are trying to do this, uh, you know, in the last year or so, uh, your book has been very helpful from, a. a methodological and sociological standpoint and theological standpoint. I've read a few others like Derwin Gray's book on uh, ND racial division and Isaac Adams is a kind of a pastoral book. Uh, Shai Lin has a new book out as well uh, called The New Reformation, kind of taking a similar approach. But I want to talk a little bit about your book. 
you you kind of raised two um, equal and opposite as you as you kind of phrase them damaging or maybe false sort of um, polarities. One is the, this idea of of colorblindness, and the other one the idea of the sort of, sort of mainstream anti-racism uh, movement. Do you want to briefly kind of share why you feel both of those movements, both of those, I wouldn't say movements, both of those um, tendencies hurt our racial uh, conversations? You know, uh, so just to, I'll briefly define them so people know what we're talking about. You know, colorblindness is the notion that we deal with race by ignoring race. We deal with race by saying, I don't see race. Anti-racism, you know, we've had a lot of anti-racism books come out and among its tenets is this notion that whites need to do what people of color want them to do. And, and that comes out in a lot of these books. Uh, I can go into that if people disagree with me, but, you know, it's hard to find an anti-racism book that doesn't have that uh, as one of its themes. So, you know, th they both ha say different things. Now, here's the, here's the sort of ironic part. I think they both fail for the same reason, even though they go in different directions. I think they both fail because both of them basically say, look, I have the answer. What you need to do is do what I say is the answer, and then we'll have racial harmony. Well, you can always have harmony if people, you know, if, if, you, could, if you could be Professor X and make everyone do exactly what you want, then yeah, you have harmony. But we don't live in that sort of world. And, and so expecting people to... Oh, to do what you want and get in harmony that way is not going to work in this world. I think there's a scriptural reason for this. You know, you're, you're at uh, Southwestern Seminary now. Uh, I think when you look at human depravity, it gives us insight as to why that mm -hmm. will not work. Uh, so what I am talking about as sort of a third way is not, I'm not going to come and say, look, here's what you all need to do. Y'all do this, and we solve it the problems. Because then I'm just no matter no matter what I say, afterwards I'm just as guilty as they are. I'm gonna say what we need to do is learn how to communicate with each other in a healthy way, in a purposeful way, so that we can build on each other's ideas and solve problems that way, racial problems that way. And to me, that is more in keeping in line with the notion that we have human depravity because now we can learn from other people, our own weaknesses, and move forward in that sense. It's really good. I want to dig into each of these a little bit, and then I want to talk about your what you recommend. You talk about active listening. It's, it's a really important way to to bring people together. The, the first thing you talk about is colorblindness. And I, and I think one of the things I really – liked about the way you, you wrote about this is, is you come at a perspective of saying, I understand why people talk this way. You know, a lot of um, white evangelicals, well-meaning will say, well, I don't see color. And I think what they mean is, I try not to discriminate based on some the colors of someone's skin. But what, en what ends up uh, coming out is, is that I don't see color. But when you look at scripture, especially Revelation 5, Revelation 7, you know, the Bible tends to portray our varied ethnicities as this sort of beautiful mosaic that God has created. And so to not see colors, to not see someone, how God made them. So explain why that, you know, that kind of language is is sometimes unhelpful. Yeah. So, you know, when you tell a person of color, you don't see color, uh, you know, if you tell me I, you don't see color, first, I understand from what you just said, that that's probably what you mean. But being an African-American is part of my social identity. It's part of who I am. 
Now, I will be the first one to say it is not the most important part of who I am. I'm not saying that I'm black before everything else, because I'm not. You know, I'm a child of God before everything else. So I'm just going to be upfront about that. But I am also African, African-American. It's a part of who I am. And so when you say you don't see color, what you're saying is that this part of who you are, this important part, not the most important, but still important part of who you are, I don't say it at all. I don't acknowledge it. It's not that important to me. So it, it sort of communicates to a person of color that an important part of who they are is just irrelevant to you, that they're not allowed to bring that to you. I think sometimes people don't understand what they're saying when they say, why are you always bringing race into it? And while there are people who bring race into things just to cause a ruckus, gain power, what have you, most of the time when you bring race into it as an African-American, it's just because that's who I am. And I'm revealing a little bit of myself to you. Uh, and, and so that becomes very, you know, that, that becomes something that's hard for a person of color to hear, uh, you know, unless there's someone like me who's used to it and, and knows how to navigate those waters. Yeah. And it, and it makes sense when I, when you hear someone say that, I mean, I think on the one sense, I don't see color when it comes to, um, and, I, and you talk about this in the book, when it comes to actually the law, you know, the law should be colorblind in some ways and in, in, in the sense that it shouldn't discriminate. Uh, I think is, is is what you said. But the idea that we don't see someone in the full humanity of the way that God created them is beautiful. Uh, I, I like the way that you talked about how that can be unhelpful. Let's talk about the the other the other um, sort of unhelpful position that you you describe anti-racism. I mean, on the surface, I mean, everybody would raise their hand and say, of course, I'm anti-racist. No, you know, nobody wants to be known as pro-racist, right? But there is this kind of growing body of of thinking, of literature, books. You think about Abraham Kendi's work and Robin DiAngelo and many others. That seems to be a departure from some of the typical civil rights sort of language. Explain why it's problematic for uh, racial harmony and racial unity. Yeah, you know, when you think about it, people want to be colorblind too. I mean, we have these great terms. I don't want to pay attention to race, or I, I want to be an anti-racist. I'm not a pro-racist. And so it's sort of sort of interesting the way we use these terms. So what does it mean to be anti-racist beyond just you're, you're against racism? Well, I want to know what people actually thought when they said anti-racism. And so that's why I read, you know, I, I read a lot of the anti-racism books that are out there. Uh, and, and that's where I, I pick up certain tenets of anti-racism, to be very proactive and deal with race, that race is, is, is a part of all facets of our society. And then what I've already mentioned before, that the role of whites is to do what people really want them to do. And I think that's where it gets into all sorts of trouble. I, I would say that if all anti-racism was is that we'd be very proactive and deal with race and that race is very pernicious throughout our society. I would probably qualify myself as an anti-racist because, you know, I believe those things. But I know and research has shown that having this sort of attitude to say whites have to do what people kind of want them to do does not help us. In fact, it can create backlash. It can create complacency. Uh, you know, it actually can work against the goals, the stated goals of anti-racism. So, you know, the research shows it does not work. And... No matter how you feel about, you know, maybe you read D'Angelo and you felt uh, heard or anything, something like that, and you're a person of color. And I guess that's great for your feelings, but when it comes to the real world, whether actually doing this can actually make things better, it doesn't. And so we just have to be, we just have to acknowledge that, that that's just a reality. 
So what can we do to make things better is what we should be asking. And, you know, right now there's a lot of concern across the board about what is often labeled CRT. Obviously, there is a body of work, uh, critical race theory. You know, and I find the arguments kind of or the, the conversations a little bit tedious, as, as maybe you do. On the one hand, you know, there is serious concern, I think, by parents and other folks about what is being taught in schools and mm-hmm. some of the some of the lit- anti-racism literature that you mentioned that 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 can be harmful that actually is is harmful to racial unity and racial harmony and on the other hand sometimes i find folks you know anytime you talk about racial reconciliation racial unity it gets labeled crt you know that's mm-hmm. that's crt yeah. work so how do we break through some of these you know the the labeling and some of these things that happen where there is a genuine concern about about CRT in some places but then everything you know every, every conversation about race gets labeled that and it kind of shuts shuts everything down how are you finding ways to kind of transcend these uh these sort of labels you, you know what i tell people is look you know if you have a problem with something in your school mm-hmm. system find out what it is and critique that so let's say they're teaching white fragility and you have a problem mm-hmm. with white fragility and I don't blame you. I, the concept, as an academic term, is not very useful. And you know, I think I think the arguments are, are are very weak. That's fine. Don't call it CRT. Say I have a problem with the Angela being taught in my school because I have this, the such and such such and such such a problem with white fragility. That's accurate. And you know, I share your concern. When we label, if we just say CRT to everything, then all of a sudden, legitimate attempts. To, to look at our history or legitimate attempts to address some of the racialized problems gets labeled CRT and it's all lumped together. And that's, you know, that's the reason why the definition is important. Now, I will say that, uh, you know, I just read an article the other day where, where Kendi says, yeah, CRT is good in our schools. And I think it, it's a little disingenuous for people to say, well, we don't have any CRT in our schools, which is technically the case if, in that you're not, you're not getting, you know, Crenshaw and bring it, and, and they're not reading Crenshaw or Bell. or you know, That's technically the case. But to say that CRT has not influenced some of what's been brought in school is dis- disingenuous. So I think both sides are a, little, are a little bit playing word games with us. And what I would rather us do is, all right, let's just break down what's being done in the schools and then we can take it on its own merits rather than bring the CRT label to either defend or to used to plaster on everything. Yeah, I mean, I feel that uh, that's such a great approach, you know, because there is genuine concern and, and a lot of folks want to dismiss that. And then uh, at the other hand, you know, any genuine attempts for racial reconciliation is is, is labeled certain things um, to shut it down. Um, I think about that when I think about systemic racism, you know, mm. if you mention systemic racism, I feel like on the one hand, because of the influence of some of the anti-racism literature, every every single thing is chalked up to systemic racism, which I think is unhelpful. And yet, you know, as a Christian, we can't have a concept of systemic sin, systemic racism. I mean, it's it's clear the the system of chattel slavery was a systemic was systemically racist, right? We could even say some of the other effects of Jim Crow and 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 on down the line, you know, redlining. Those those things were systemic racism that this you know, this is possible that we, we can believe in individual sin and, and culpability, but also that systems that are run by 
human beings can be sinful. And yet not every single problem can be chalked up to that. So uh, you, you talk about that in the book, that about how to navigate this concept of systemic racism. Are you finding that people are open to hearing things about this? And what what do you recommend in this conversation? Yeah, I, I guess it just depends on where they're at. I mean, some are and some are not. And, and part of it is how do we talk to people in a way they can hear us? Because I think that's a key. Uh, you know, I don't go into talks leaking talk about white supremacy because I know that turns people off right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think sometimes I'm successful in, in illustrating that, yeah, this is a real problem. Sometimes I'm not. Uh, you know, I think that's the way it is for, for most individuals when you make an honest effort at communication. I think that for me, I like to use research because that's part of who I am as, as a scholar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like one, one piece of research that I like to talk about is the fact that what we call audit studies have been done on, on people applying for jobs. And we know that with these audit studies, which is basically having a white person and then either a black or an Hispanic person apply for a job, that the white person gets called back for the interview more than the black and Hispanic person. So we know that there's that there's these uh, difficulties out there, uh, and you know there's other research out there. So I like to use research to, in order to sort of show this, uh, and and like I said, sometimes it's successful. A person wants to uh, learn about it. I think it usually is. If a person says no, I'm not going to believe it no matter what. Then there's nothing you can do. You know, one of the things that I really enjoy about your book is you encourage folks. It sounds so simple, but to to listen to each other. And to go into conversations about race with an open mind. Talk about why that's so important and maybe explain what you mean when you talk about active listening. So, you know, we can listen to respond. Like if we're in a debate, we're listening to respond. We're, we're, we're hearing them to, so we can pull apart their arguments. And, and so there's a place for that, obviously. But I think we, we engage in too much of that type of listening when we deal with racial issues. We're, we talk about an issue and we're listening so that we can know what our comeback's gonna be. What I'm suggesting is let's listen to, to really hear where the person's coming from, to understand where the person's coming from, for the purpose, hopefully, of finding solutions for yourself and that other person. This traditionally kind of listening to called active listening. Uh, when I interview people as part of my research project, when I when I did the project on atheists, I actually listened. I wasn't looking to debate atheists. I wasn't looking to debate them. But I wanted to understand why they believe what they believe and what is it they believe. That is the sort of attitude we're going to have to start developing. To, to you know, I used to call it an attitude of curiosity. I want to be, I should be curious as to why you believe this thing that I don't believe. You know, what's driving this? Because I'm going to have a good faith effort to say that there's some sort of sincere ideas that's driving when we disagree. And maybe you are right, maybe I'm wrong. But I want to have, have an attitude of curiosity of, of listening in a way where I can hear what that person is saying and not place what I think they should be saying on there. I think a lot of hesitation that folks have in entering conversation about racial reconciliation is that they won't be heard, you know, mm-hmm. whether yeah. um, that they're going to go to this thing. And this, this is on all sides, I think. And they're just going to be lectured or talked down to yeah. or demeaned. Um, you know, these conversations are so highly charged, especially online, but in other forums. And there's so much literature, I think, on all sides that sort of sees the other, someone who comes at it from a different perspective as the enemy, 
that there's just no incentive to, to sort of say, hey, wait a minute, I might learn something from this person. Or, hey, uh, they made a good point. Or maybe, the, you know, maybe, maybe there's, a, there's a way to go, you know, there's a way forward here. Um, do you think that kind of defensiveness is kind of an obstacle to some of these conversations? And how do we break that down? Yeah, so clearly that that's one of the problems, that we, uh, we don't hear people out. We already have our defenses up, and so we can't understand where they're coming from. Uh, so yeah, so that, that is clearly a problem. I think we need a change of mindset, that we're going to have to change our mindset. And we in the church should lead the way, but eventually we in the country have to change our mindset. So we're, we are talking to understand, to solve problems. We're talking to confront and to win some sort of battle. I think that, I mean, we're so, you know, Danny, we're, we're such a polarized society today. And race is just part of it, but, you know, it's a very polarizing society. So what are we going to do about it? You know, we, we've got to break break the cycle that we have of trying to fight people all the time and learn how to work together. What I love about this, your book, Beyond Racial Gridlock, is that you do a lot of research in there. And you just talked about the surprising kind of data about some of our racial conversations. One of the things that was interesting to me is, you know, I think in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the protests, but maybe even a little bit before that, a lot of corporations, a lot of businesses really try to, I think well-meaning, try to help their employees yeah. understand race, racial issues. But some of those efforts, the DEI folks and whatever you found in your research are actually counterproductive. Some of the some of the trainings and, and those things are why why were those so counterproductive, you know, uh, yeah. in terms of, of helping people understand each other? Well, I think sometimes what happens is that you get a sugar high. And you know, you, you get this training and, and, and you, you get excited and you're and you and you actually have less prejudice, but it's, it doesn't last. It's a sugar high. You know, and a few months later, things are back to normal. I just think the idea of having people try to train you out of racism in this day and age is very difficult to do. I think people have to sort of move out on their own. And, and that's why I think conversation can help with that. But if we try to find mechanisms by which we, you know, try to talk them out of it or, or have them read out of it and, and convince them, feel like we have to convince them, then I think that's doomed to fail because their own human depravity blinds them to this reality. And then again, our own our human depravity. I mean, do I have the right answers I'm trying to teach this person? You can't really be fully comfortable that you do. So I think that those are some of the factors that really limit what companies can do. Yeah, I really think so too. And there's been a lot written about some of the nature of some of these trainings and, and some of the literature that's going in there. And it's sort of actually counterproductive, made people actually less inclined to um, to uh, talk to someone of a different race or befriend them. Yeah. So I think that's it's interesting. Sometimes the well-meaning efforts are actually counterproductive. Um, the last question I have is, you know, if you're if you're talking to a pastor or a church leader who wants to help foster racial reconciliation in their community and their church, maybe they're a yeah. little nervous because there's so many landmines here. What advice would you give them? Obviously, besides read your excellent book, which I'm going to tell them everybody to go out and, Number one and do. <laughs> but what advice would you give a pastor or church leader? trying to have these conversations, trying to, the scriptures uh, call to pursue racial reconciliation, but do it in a way that's God-glorifying, biblical, and in a time when there's just so many landmines and we're so polarized. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of situations in which this could, this could take place. So let me take a situation where you have a pastor who has a passion for this, they have a congregation that is not. And 
for what I would suggest is something that we learned while we were studying multiracial churches. Now, some churches went from being monoracial to multiracial, uh, and the pastor helped lead that. And what usually happened was that the pastor would, would work with a small group of leaders, their elders or board or, or, or just interested individuals, and work with them to cast a vision for them. And then once they had the vision, then those people would be his, his or her ambassadors. Uh, Southern Baptist, I guess, I guess should say his, right? Uh, that pastor, his ambassadors. And then those individuals will help that person as he tries to talk to the congregation about a different direction, about having a better conversations. So, that, so that's an approach that I think I've seen work for multiracial churches to move a church to want to make the steps towards becoming multiracial. I think it can work here. Uh, and then if your congregation is already on board, then to try to find avenues to have better racial conversations within and without the church. Uh, I think that that's something that we need more and more Christians doing. Mm. Well, it's such a good work, George. I really appreciate your work. I, I want to encourage folks to follow George Yancey um, to get his excellent book, uh, Beyond Racial Division, a Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and Anti-Racism. It's a very, very excellent book. I've recommended it numerous times and talked to a lot of church leaders who've said it's found it very helpful. Uh, George, thanks for joining me today on the Way Home Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at, at @dandarling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M. Darling. Thank you for listening again to The Way Home Podcast.